Hello there, this is Mark Bauerline with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. David Dusenberry is with us today. He is research fellow at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He's the author of Platonic Legislations, an essay on legal critique in ancient Greece. But he has a new book that's our topic today. It's entitled The Innocence of Pontius Pilate, How the Roman Trial of Jesus Shaped History. Welcome, David. Thanks so much. Now, David, you say that you do not wish to do theology in the book. What is your aim? What is your approach? Well, I mean, I, I, I think there is more than one aim um, in the sense that I'm trying to tell, reconstruct a story that, that crosses into a number of different scholarly domains. So we have uh, chapters which deal with biblical exegesis, the history of interpretation. There are chapters on Christian apocrypha and pseudepigrapha, so on and so forth. I mean, th there's a chapter on the Talmud, a chapter on Quranic interpretation. So that's, uh, th that's one way of saying that there's actually quite a lot going on. But by way of sort of uh, tran transgressing on a number of different domains, I'm trying to show how the the central drama, or certainly one of the central dramas of uh, of Christian history and Christian imagination, Christian hope and faith, uh, namely the the trial and death of of Jesus of Nazareth, impinges upon um, the history of law and of politics in 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 very complicated ways. Um, so I suppose I'm trying to show. Something that really should not be surprising at all, um, that in Christian Europe, um, from the late ancient period until uh, the, the turn of the 19th century, almost anyone who was anyone writing on the topic of law, in one way or another, reflected upon uh, the trial and death of Jesus. And um, I then tried to show how and that these reflections on the trial and death of Jesus um, may have altered the course of, of European political history, uh, legal history. You, in the title, you emphasize Pilate's innocence. Why, why do you give Pilate innocence here? Well, I mean, uh, the, the, there's actually a slightly complicated um, history behind the title. Um, as, I, as I say in the first page of the book in my author's note, um, the, the original inspiration for the book was actually a very, very short book by the Italian cultural philosopher Giorgio Agamben, um, 
roughly five years ago, he published a small meditation called Pilate and Jesus, in which he argues, in a way that is not totally dissimilar to my argument, that the, the Roman trial of Jesus is really one of the pivotal events in uh, European intellectual and political history. Um, and um, But at the same time, for Agamben, what is, what is most consequential about the Roman trial of Jesus is his idea um, that Pilate, at the conclusion of his interrogation of Jesus, did not sentence Jesus to death. And it's in the process of working through Agamben and his sources roughly five years ago that I began to realize that Agamben's idea that Pilate did not sentence, sentence Jesus is, is not remotely uh, modern or novel. It actually goes back to the early Christian centuries. And I then began to discover that this, uh, this early Christian motif is by no means itself innocent. So the, the, the motif... The, the idea of the innocence of Pontius Pilate is by no means an innocent idea or a, an innocent tradition. Um, and so, the, in a sense, I would say, Mark, that, you know, the title of the book is a bit of a feint. I mean, it's a bit uh, shocking uh, to propose that, that Pontius Pilate is innocent. That is not at all, in fact, what I'm proposing, as I, as I clarify in the first pages of the book. But I try to I try to show both that there is a very long tradition of um, Christian exculpation of Pontius Pilate, which um, I argue is not uh, rooted in in the canonical Gospels or the you know some of the most uh, authoritative texts in the tradition. But also I try to show that it is precisely a counter tradition, which is exemplified by Augustine of Hippo. Augustine of Hippo argues, I'm, I'm sure we'll get to this in a few minutes, but Augustine argues that Pilate does sentence Jesus, that Pilate is therefore culpable uh, in, some, uh, in some way for the death of Jesus. And it's this Augustinian tradition, which I try to show, um, has the most striking effects in terms of late medieval and early modern uh, political and legal theory in, uh, in Europe. You know, section one has the subtitle, The Most Sublime Irony in the History of Empire. What's the sublimity? What's the irony going on? So this chapter, um, this chapter, if I may say so, in my opinion, um, is maybe one of the most interesting in, in the book. And um, I, I began with just a, a very simple fact, and that is in, in the very first sentences, of the introductory text to the massive corpus of, of Roman law, uh, which is Justinian's uh, body of Roman law, the Corpus Juris Civilis, the very first lines of this massive um, text, uh, or rather series of texts, which were promulgated in the early to mid uh, 6th century in Constantinople, and which go on to influence um, European civil law quite, quite uncontroversially to the present day, um, the very, the very, the opening of this vast corpus is, um, is in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and this is perhaps on first glance, a very kind of rote and uninteresting uh, uh, invocation 
of the name of, of Jesus. Um, this is, of course, after the Christianization of the Roman Empire. But I begin by noting the fact that um, once we reckon with the fact that Jesus is actually uh, sentenced to death by a Roman prefect in Jerusalem, this means that the Roman legal tradition in Europe has as its figurehead and legitimating authority uh, the name of a man, and of course Christians believe uh, the incarnate God, um, who was condemned by Rome. And so it seems to me, um, I, I, I suppose I could say more about this sublimity, but it seems to me quite a striking fact, which as I point out in the chapter has just not been, to my awareness, dealt with um, by Roman legal historians, that the whole structure of Roman law in, in European intellectual history is placed under the name of a man convicted to death by Roman law. And um, so, as I say at the end of the chapter, I mean, I, I do think there is no end of studies which could be written about this, um, but I think the, the irony should speak for itself, um, that the Roman legal tradition begins with the unjust condemnation of a, well, a provincial uh, a Judean, not, not a Roman citizen. Um, and nevertheless, the Roman emperors, beginning with Constantine, claim that their legitimacy is rooted in some way in the death of one that Rome was wrong to put to death. You, you characterize Paul of Tarsus, you say, as a, quote, legal critic. Uh, how do you see him that way? Well, I mean, this, I must say, Mark, this is, you know, um, quite a, a controverted claim at the moment in, um, in New Testament studies. And there are very able and uh, learned uh, interpreters of Paul, uh, whole schools of interpretation, which would not necessarily uh, be quick to accept my description. But um, after having dealt with the Pauline corpus at some length, it, it does seem to me incontestable that Paul situates his uh, gospel, um, which he, of course, uh, proclaims as the gospel of Christ, um, in such a way that without denying that the, the, the law of Moses is holy and just and good, he nevertheless... Um, claims that the, the law as it had been received was um, radically incapable of uh, <laughs> delivering the sort of salvation which he was promulgating under the, under the, the name and the ages of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And um, so it seems, I mean, even the term, of course, uh, New Covenant or New Testament, as I, as I discuss in chapter one, this is Paul's term. No one disputes that Paul speaks in such terms. The very need for a new covenant suggests that there was something about the old covenant which needed a, a, a supplement or a fulfillment. Um, and, and Paul insists that the supplement and this fulfillment, although related to the law, are not essentially legal. Um, this is what he calls grace. So, I, I mean, again, we could have a very, very long conversation about this um, uh, and a rich one. Um, and I don't pretend to, to develop fully uh, anything like Paul's theology of law or grace, but it does seem to me that he 
is a critic of um, tendencies of thought, certainly within first century Hellenistic and, and Palestinian Judaism, and I would say also within Greco-Roman paganism, which were in a sense satisfied with uh, legality as um, as a path or or a uh, uh, a mode of righteousness. And I suppose the only thing I would add to that is that in many respects I regard the, the, this this attitude as quite as quite novel. You you say that in the first centuries there was a real debate over quote who is right Moses or Jesus. What was the issue there and how was it resolved? Well, I mean, in a sense, um, in, in a sense, I'm not sure it ever has been resolved to the to the extent that, of course, the question of um, the relation of of the old and the new law is one of the uh, the old and the New Testament um, is one of the un, uh, you know unresolved questions of, of Christian theology. It seems to me. I mean, feel free to uh, to disagree. Um, this particular challenge, who was right, Moses or Jesus, comes from the uh, third century philosopher Celsus, who wrote what was before Porphyry at the end of the uh, third century. Um, Celsus wrote what was by far the most uh, uh, devastating or challenging critique of Christianity. And um, he recognized that there seemed to be in the Gospels, and again, this is something that um, New Testament exegetes still hammer out, uh, the extent to which uh, the logia, the, the sayings in the Gospels, um, diverge from rabbinic tradition or diverge from Mosaic legislation. I mean, this is all very complicated uh, terrain. But Celsus noticed, which I think we, in, in the context of this conversation, can agree upon, that Jesus, as I was just describing Paul, that Jesus in one way or another diverges from interpretations of the law um, in, in, his, um, in his Galilean and, and uh, Judean milieu. And um, this, of course, was uh, the scandal, what he calls the scandal of his, uh, of his proclamation of the gospel. Um, so Celsus picks up on the fact that things that Moses seems to require of us are things that Jesus of Nazareth um, uh, pushes back against. So, of course, mm -hmm. perhaps the most the, the most pointed of all of these is the pericope uh, of the adulteress in John 8, which, of course, has a complicated uh, textual history. I personally think it, um, it fits very nicely where it is. Um, wherever it may have originated. Um, but I mean, there it's quite clear that the, the lawyers are, are, are saying, look, the law of Moses requires X. What do you say about this? And um, Jesus finds, I think, a, a truly wondrous um, and revelatory way out of, of that dilemma, of that uh, situation. Um, but anyway, so, so in the early centuries, perhaps in ways that even Christians have forgotten, it was seen as a problem for Christians that um, something about their way of life and their laws were described by them as new. This in and of itself 
was um, regarded as uh, undermining their claims to divine revelation. So this is kind of the the point that that both pagans and, in fact, let's say early rabbinic Judaism had in common the idea of any legal change or fulfillment um, was regarded by both pagan and Jewish milieu um, in the first century CE as highly problematic. And Christians, it seems to me, um, even within their own circles, of course, we have differences between Paul and Peter at certain points in, in the first days of the, uh, of the primitive church. Um, Christians had to find ways of both justifying and elaborating how new practices were both legitimate and did not subvert the the revelatory character and the justice of of older uh, practices and laws. Right. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You refer to Jesus' confession to Pilate. How does Pilate take that? confession so um yes so this is this is the the um um the the question and this is in chapter two and the question um there is that in in the letter of first timothy um there's this reference to jesus making the good confession before pontius pilate and as I as I try to kind of clarify in that chapter, it's not a, it's not immediately clear from first first Timothy um, what what this confession would be. Um, and and so I do try to give um, some uh, indications from the history of interpretation um, and from the letter itself, what what that phrase might mean. But I think I think what you're getting at is um, the moment that um, that really the book turns upon time and time again in, in different ways. And that is in John, uh, Jesus says in John 18, 36, Jesus says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Um, this is taken to be, not by me dogmatically, but this is taken to be um, the confession you refer to um, by one of the most important early modern uh, legal philosophers and legal thinkers um, in, in Europe, Hugo Grotius, um, about whom I have a fair bit to say in chapter two. So it's, it's Hugo Grotius who actually identifies this, this sentence, my kingdom is not of this world, with, um, with the confession in, in First Timothy. Um, now, Pilate's reaction to that particular uh, statement because Jesus follows this by saying, um, "It is for this I have come into this world to, to give testimony to the truth." And um, it is then that um, that Pontius Pilate comes back with his uh, famous and infamous uh, retort, "What is truth?" Um, which, of course, is a, a saying which delights Friedrich Nietzsche, 
Um, as I point out in the book's prologue, he, he calls this the only honorable utterance in the entire New Testament. Um, but but these, are, these are the two sayings which, which um, I think belong together, um, if that makes sense. Right. Uh, what was Robert Eisler's thesis about Jesus's final days? And what, what, you, you bring that in a lot and discuss it. What was that about? Well, do you want me to say just a, a couple of words about Robert Eisler? Because he's right, not so right. well known. So I, I, Eisler is really a, a very, very fascinating figure. And I've, I've had the benefits, as you mentioned, I'm, uh, I'm, my research position is at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And um, a number of my colleagues there know quite a bit about Eisler. Um, but there aren't many, you know, many places where he is um, very well known. So Eisler was a, a friend of some some quite remarkable uh, early 20th century uh, Viennese and, and uh, German uh, Berliner intellectuals, including Walter Benjamin and Gershom Scholem, the great uh, scholar of uh, Jewish mysticism and the Kabbalah. Anyway, um, Eisler wrote a really quite remarkable book in um, 1931-1932, in which he claims that um, that we have a record of the Roman trial of Jesus written by Pontius Pilate. So, of course, we have in the Gospels some sort of record of the trial as it was perceived and, and remembered um, by the earliest Christian communities. Um, and by the gospel writers drawing upon each other in some fashion, which of course is a source of some, some debate among um, specialists in these matters. Um, but as I point out in chapter three, I mean, we don't really have anything from the hand of Pilate apart from the text that is written on Jesus' cross, um, the titulus, um, as it is called, both in Latin and actually in the gospel's Greek. The, the gospel of John uses the, the correct uh, kind of uh, administrative term for for the the script on on Jesus cross. So, apart from this, we have some reason to believe that Pilate would have written about the trial of Jesus, but we have no such documents. And um, Robert Eisler was the first to claim in this important nineteen uh, book in the early nineteen thirties that a number of Russian documents which were discovered in the, the 19th century and published in critical editions at the beginning of the 20th century, these were, these were Russian old Russian translations of Josephus' um, uh, Jewish War, and, um, which is the, the text by Josephus in which we have uh, reference to um, Pilate's crucifixion of Jesus and uh, and so on and so forth, um, the death of John the Baptist. So Eisler argued that certain passages which appear in the Russian Josephus, which appear which do not appear in the original Greek Josephus, that these are actually coming directly from Pilate's hand, basically. Um, and it is in these texts that a claim is made that uh, that Jesus basically called for an occupation of the Temple Mount. Um, the Roman the Roman troops were violently engaged with, and Jesus was seized as a uh, as an armed rebel 
and uh, dispatched. Um, so Eisler makes two kind of uh, intertwined claims. One is that um, the, the Roman trial of Jesus was the trial of, of an armed uh, militant, an insurgent. That's one claim. And he makes that claim on the basis of these passages in, in the Russian version of Josephus. Um, and then the question becomes how reliable is the, you know, are these Russian versions of Josephus? What was the book from late antiquity entitled Memoirs of Pilate? Uh, okay, well, Mark, let me just go back and say, since I, I kind of left that question open, um, the, <laughs> the scholars are, are uh, there's a consensus that the Russian Josephus, the passages that I've just been referring to are, are not, in fact, um, original uh, or reliable. Um, so, yeah, so um, the, 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 the memoirs of Pilate um, are a text which unfortunately are, are no longer extant in, in any language. And um, they were, th th this was a propagandistic text um, promulgated by an emperor I call the last uh, pagan emperor of Rome, Maximinus Daya or Daja. Um, he was a contemporary of Constantine. So basically, when Constantine had successfully um, taken control of the Western Empire, Maximinus was holding the Eastern Empire for a couple of years, um, 311 to 313. And in this period of, of really very, very intense struggle for control of the, the empire, Maximinus uh, promulgated a book called The Memoirs of Pilate, um, which, again, I've just been describing how Robert Eisler in the early 20th century claimed that we have an actual record from the hand of Pontius Pilate um, of the trial of Jesus. So in the early 4th century, Maximinus Daya um, promulgated a document which purported to be the Roman bureaucratic record of, uh, of the trial of Jesus, um, which unsurprisingly... Um, showed to his satisfaction and, and to the satisfaction of the pagan contingency um, that, that Jesus was a criminal who needed to be killed. Um, so this is the unfortunately lost text, um, which is mainly known to us through Eusebius of Caesarea, the great kind of the, the father of uh, church history. Um, so Eusebius discusses the memoirs in a number of texts, but from what I can tell, um, Church historians have not paid much attention at all to these memoirs in Eusebius um, church history. So I tried for what seems to be, you know, roughly the first time I tried to really thematize in, in chapter four um, what we know from Eusebius and from a few other texts um, about, about what seems to be kind of the last propaganda battle um, that the that the pagans waged against the rising uh, Christian contingency in the early fourth century. There is much more to talk about uh, in the book, uh, which is entitled "The Innocence of Pontius Pilate: How the Roman Trial of Jesus Shaped History." David Dusenberry, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition 
and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930. 